0: Today's episode of Lions of Liberty is brought to you by... The System Is Down, a great podcast produced and hosted by fan and friend of the show, Dan Smotz. Dan's goal with The System Is Down is to change the world one uncomfortable conversation at a time, and he does that each and every Monday as he hosts civil debates and discussions on politics, religion, conspiracies, and everything in between. He's had on many guests familiar to fans of this show, including Scott Horton, Jason Stapleton, Roger Paxton, Ramzo Martinez, as well as all. All three hosts of this program, Brian, Odie, and myself, Mark Clare. Dan also hosts a weekly news program called The Anti-News every Tuesday. And one thing I love about this show is how much Dan goes out of his way to interact with his fans. He really helps to show you that the person you disagree with online is not your enemy. So question everything and stay uncomfortable with The System Is Down. Find it on iTunes, Stitcher, and everywhere you find podcasts, as well as over at tsidpod.com. And I will also, of course, include a link over in today's show notes for this show over at lionsofliberty.com slash 376. Hello and welcome back to Lions of Liberty, your favorite libertarian podcast that you're listening to right now here on Monday. How about that? I got to at least make that category. Of course, I am here each and every Monday conducting interviews with brilliant minds in the libertarian movement like the one you're going to hear today. I also host occasional roundtable discussions Like the one you're going to hear next week when Libertarians in Living Rooms Drinking Liquor makes its return. And the other thing that makes its return next week is something that has been a huge hit in past years of the show. That's right. We are bringing back next Monday as part of that Libertarians in Living Rooms Drinking Liquor episode the Liberty Draft. That is right. I'm very excited to return the Liberty Draft to your earbuds, so look forward to that next week. Another thing I want you all to look forward to is something that's occurring this Thursday. This will be for exclusively for members of the Lions of Liberty Pride, our supporters on Patreon at $5 a month or higher. I'll be conducting a live Ask Me Anything, taking questions from our Patreon supporters, while also ingesting various hot sauces and at escalating heat levels as I go along, ending with one that I believe I don't really know the uh, the uh, the measurement of heat or what it actually means, but it's measured at 1 million. And uh, that's not a joke, because uh, one of our $25 per month Mufasa members, Joey Meyer, sent me a bunch of hot sauces. This all happened a few months ago when I forgot to post a certain ask me anything or something, and I said, I'll do whatever you guys want, and I believe it was Joey that suggested I eat something strange, and I said, well, I'll eat anything hot. Uh, so he actually sent me a whole box of different hot sauces, and I'm going to be imbibing these as I go, as I take questions from our 100-plus supporters on Patreon. So if you want to hear that, if you want to see me sweat, now is the time to head on over to patreon.com slash lionsofliberty. Toss us 5 bucks a month or more. Of course, we have various perks at various levels, uh, but for as little as $5 a month, you can get access to all of our exclusive audio, including the League of Liberty podcast. I'll be doing another one of those soon with Roger Paxton, Chris and Johnny Rocket Adams. We also have the Conspiracy Corner podcast, which another one will be dropping very soon as well. So much content, of course, Degenerate Gamblers each and every week with Brian, Odie, and Rico, uh, all about not just sports gambling, but all the many ridiculous, ridiculous stories from our past and present lives. So really so much content out there for our Patreon supporters, and all it costs you is five bucks a month. So please do head on over, check that out. Watch me feel the burn as I take the heat. From Pride members. Now that that business is out of the way, I'm really excited to bring you today's interview. I've been sitting on it for a little while here as uh, our guests made a little bit of the rounds of the podcast circuit, but this interview is unlike any of the others you have heard. Of course, I'm talking about Gene Epstein, who recently partook in a debate about socialism, capitalism versus socialism. He, of course, represented the side of capitalism. And uh, I'm not going to talk about it too much more right now because this is a very detailed interview, but let's just say we took a little bit of a different angle and I took questions from fans of the show who helped me raise every single objection to the ideas of capitalism and for socialism that they could muster, and Gene tackles every single one of them here today. And I'm planning to air the rest of this program completely commercial-free. I just want you to be able to absorb all the great information coming at you here. But I do want to first encourage you to head over to lionsofliberty.com health if you are at all searching for an alternative to your current health insurance. I know prices are just getting higher and higher. It's getting harder to afford health insurance for your family. But luckily, there is an amazing free market alternative known as Health Excellence Plus. Please do head over to lionsofliberty.com health to learn more. Thank <laughs> you. My guest today is the former economics editor at Barron's, where you can still find his writing on various economic topics. He's also the director of the Soho Forum, which features debates on topics very relevant to libertarians, including a very recent debate where he was actually one of the participants defending free market capitalism against the concept of socialism. And we're going to be talking about that a little bit later on today. He was most recently on this program back in March discussing the fiscal time bomb of U.S. debt. very pleased to welcome Back, Mr. Gene Epstein. Gene, are you ready to roar?
1: You know, Mark, in my debate with Basco Sankara, I found I roared a little bit too much at him. <laughs> so I'm going to roar a little less and, and purr maybe somewhat okay. to try to explain my position. Although I was mostly uh, pleased with how the debate went.
0: Yeah, you definitely uh got fired up, I would say, especially towards the end yeah. and we'll, we'll talk about that more a little later sure. on, but you, you I'd say I'd say roaring is definitely an appropriate term to use. Yeah. <laughs> And, uh, you know, before we get further into that debate, which was, uh, like you mentioned, it was you uh, debating this guy, Bhaskar uh, Sankara of the Jacobin magazine. I did want to discuss something that has uh, kind of creeped up since the last time you were on the show. You know, there was this wave of people joining the Libertarian Party, a lot of podcasters, uh, Tom Woods, Dave Smith, Mance Raider, Jason Stapleton, a whole bunch of people joining the Libertarian Party. And uh, shortly after that, you also announced that you had joined the Libertarian Party. So I want to touch on that real quick. What inspired you to join the Libertarian Party, and what do you? You envision your role being here
1: well all those guys that, that who, who you just mentioned actually mainly dave smith and uh tom woods joined the libertarian party and uh i figured that look if they're doing it i'll do it a small gesture a few bucks and nothing much to it and uh i guess they're asking me uh to uh to speak uh on behalf of uh of the gubernatorial candidate in new york in new york state so i'll do that uh, so I'm pretty much of a follower when it comes to these things, and that's uh, that's really about it.
0: Very cool. And, and so you're basically just you're there, and you're willing to you know be a voice for certain causes and candidates uh, when appropriate. So be a
1: follower, not a leader. And uh, I, I have to <laughs> remind you, Mark, that you. That you told me since, especially since I'm a Bernie Sanders look-alike, I probably should be in <laughs> the office, but probably that's not going to happen.
0: Because I was going to follow it up. We did, we did sort of tease it a little bit in the the last time you were on the program of a potential Gene Epstein uh, presidential run. Are you ruling that out right now?
1: Looks like I'm ruling that out right now because about the only guy who keeps drafting me is um, is is you, Mark. <laughs>
0: All right, I so I need to build a little more of a following on this person who, uh,
1: who of course, love the fact that I've got that, that I'm a Bernie Sanders look-alike.
0: <laughs> All right. Well, you know, um, Gene, like, like I mentioned, I heard Dave Smith just raving about this debate. Yeah. He often does the uh, d- does a little comedy introduction to these debates, and he, he did the last one. So he was there in person. And uh, when I heard him so passionate about, about your passionate performance, I just had to see this debate. So I was literally checking my, my computer every day, <laughs> waiting to see till it, it oh, popped yeah. up. It finally popped up yesterday, and I, I was able to check out the whole thing. And mm-hmm. uh, I got to say, it, it delivered, especially uh, your performance. And as you mentioned, you got really, really fired up up in there but first i want to talk about kind of um, how this debate came about it sounded to me uh from bascar's opening comments that he was, uh, it was it took a lot of convincing from you to get him to do this debate and he seemed to even mention it in his opening statement that he was a little hesitant about doing it so how did this whole thing come about
1: oh yeah no indeed i was uh, actually concerned uh, uh, up to the last moment about whether bascar would necessarily show up he did practically nothing to, we had to pay him to advertise it to his own people. Um, and so he was pretty reluctant. Uh, he shifted the uh, resolution midstream. But to answer your question, actually, it, it, it began, uh, my interest in this began when uh, my, my friend Nick Gillespie, whom I have a high regard for, and Catherine Mangle-Ward, debated Baskar uh, and um, and uh, Vivek Chibber, a sociology professor, uh, a little over a year ago, uh, and in fact, then the the socialists really came out on mass. And uh, I I told Nick that he was walking into a trap. There was a New York Times journalist who moderated it, um, and it was all about putting capitalism on trial. Uh, there was really the, the problem with it just from the get-go was that uh, that Catherine and uh, Nick were asked to define capitalism, and the other side was not asked to define socialism, and so the debate really was between the reality of capitalism and some vague utopian ideal that nobody had to, had to define of socialism. So I thought I want to set this right. I want to do an Oxford-style debate in which we have a focused. Uh, resolution uh, not not run by a moderator who's on the side of the socialists, and uh we're going to define both socialism and capitalism and uh, have at it. And uh, I actually uh, uh, challenged v- Professor Vivek Chibber, a sociologist at NYU, initially, and he declined. Uh, I then uh, wrote Baskar, the other guy, and. Uh, He said yes, although I'll tell you something funny. I said, this would be the resolution, socialism is far more effective than capitalism in bringing freedom and prosperity to the masses, or alternatively, capitalism is far more effective than socialism. I said, choose either one, either side, you want to be the affirmative, the negative. Baskar wrote me back pretty promptly and he said, would you take the word far out of it and I'll defend socialism is far more effective than capitalism in bringing freedom and prosperity to the masses. I said, fine. And then only about a month, month and a half ago, Baskar suddenly writes me at 4.30 in the morning to tell me that he, <laughs> that he informed me a couple of times he can't defend prosperity part. He can only do the freedom part.
0: Well, he actually said the words, he cannot defend that part. Yeah, yeah. I I, I
1: don't know. Look, I could even send it to you. He said, (laughs) I told you a couple of times, I can't do that. And and he wrote something somewhat incoherent that I couldn't quite follow. Uh, And he said, uh, we we can only do freedom. I I wrote him back right away. I said, okay, only freedom. Socialism is more effective than, than capitalism in bringing freedom to the masses. All right, we'll just confine it to that, which wasn't necessarily a bad idea because Both freedom and prosperity are pretty massive topics. But I've had the impression that, you know, there's something he's freaking out a little bit because he said to me that he told me this a couple of times, but I could show you our email exchange in which he never mentioned this at all. Just
0: something about the fact that he sent this email at 4:30 in the morning kind of cracks me up. I just, can I picture him just sweating profusely and trying to come up with arguments for why socialism creates more prosperity, getting nowhere and just to, you know trying to back out of it.
1: Yeah, I I don't know what was motivating him uh, really. I, I do know he'd been he'd been having some issues. You perhaps have read about this. He bought, you know, the guy is quite a capitalist. He bought, he bought a, uh, a socialist newspaper in England. He got into, he paid the, the, the journalist 70% of back pay. And then they claimed he reneged on a promise he'd made. So he was under some fire at the time. Anyway, I was concerned, uh, right? And then on top of that, he was not promoting uh, his debate with the Jacobin readership. A lot of Jack Quinn subscribers. And I was, again, that concerned. That seems so odd. Anyway, all of those background facts made me concerned about whether he would even show up. He did, however, and uh, then indeed, he said something about him being ambivalent about actually coming. I'm glad he did come. Uh, and then, of course, toward the end, I got a little bit, a bit heated uh, by uh, almost sort of yelling at my former self about how obtuse he could be about some of the points I was raising, but uh, I'm anticipating. Anyway, that's the background uh, of it. I I will say, by the way, that, and then of course, if you watch the debate, you recall that Baskar turns out to be some kind of intense fan of professional basketball. And when he was asked a question about (laughs) it, he he said it's fine with him that the basketball players Get these fantastic salaries. I don't know where the guy is coming from. He's created, but he has created. He's a 29-year-old guy. He's created this magazine. 38 million subscribers. He bought. He was. He had enough money to make a deal with some socialist newspaper. So the guy is indeed quite entrepreneurial and and actually uh, quite personable.
0: Yeah, he actually said something really interesting about the basketball thing. Yeah. Uh, that he said that he thought LeBron James should actually make a lot more money than he makes right now which I thought was really interesting because he's referring to, uh, you know, there's, there's basically a deal with the players association that does kind of cap what, what players in the NBA can make. And his, he's making kind of two arguments at once that LeBron James should make so much more because uh, he's, he's as opposed to maybe the owners of the team, I think is probably what, what he's suggesting. Um, but under his model, really his, his teammates should also make just as much more because they're part of the team as well. It's, it's very confusing, you know, where he actually comes from. On oh that. yeah. Should... You
1: know, I didn't want to go there because again, you I... know, you're thinking about picking your spots. The issue is about freedom. But I'll tell you, I don't know if if you're familiar with uh, with a, with a famous uh, example used by the philosopher Robert Nozick in, in his book Anarchy, State, and Utopia, in which he talks about how uh, the uh, clearly that that if you began with a socialist economy in which all income is evenly distributed, or distributed according to the desired socialist pattern. He then said, what if the basketball player, Wilt the still Chamberlain, uh, decides to moonlight and democ- demonstrate his basketball skills and rents Madison Square Garden, and everybody shows up for 25 cents apiece, and Wilt walks away with a million bucks? Doesn't that disturb the socialist distribution of income? But how can we object to it? So I mean, it's just kind of funny, it reminded me of that. and." Clearly, what does that do to Bhaskar's notion that, that 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 people who work for employers, for capitalists, are are, are preyed upon? And what does it do to his idea of, of equality? But, of course, that was an economic issue, so I didn't want to touch it. And I just made the remark about subsidizing sports stadiums, uh, which Bhaskar, by the way, approves of, which, as he said. But I, we we just dropped it pretty quickly. But, again, Bhaskar is somewhat a massive contradictions, I guess, as are so many socialists. My mother, who was a member of the Communist Party, was also a massive contradictions. I should mention. Anyway.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, I think that's what's really interesting about you is that you were raised uh, by a literal communist. Yeah. And you you were, you know, when you're younger life, you talked about this a, lit, a bit the last time on the show, and I'll link to that in today's show notes. But, you know, you you even said during the debate that you still do have sort of socialist ethics in a sense that you do. You are a bleeding heart. You do want the best for people. But that is why you are a, a free market capitalist.
1: Yes. No, absolutely. I, I, I actually I, I definitely got uh, my, my my first Sort of gateway drug to understanding the free market uh, was uh, my grappling with the issue of freedom, my recognition of the fact that if if there is no pro- no potential for private ownership of the means of production there can't be a free press there can't be free meeting halls there can't be a Soho forum because there then,
0: can't be a jacobin magazine <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly uh, precisely uh, on, unlikely to be precisely because then we're all going up uh, against the state-run bank which really set me off when jacobin when, when jacobin when pasco talked about it yeah, yeah that I, was
0: when you started to get really fired yeah, up yeah <laughs> yeah
1: so that's but uh because you know, again i was just he, such a sweet guy what's wrong with Anyway, but then, uh, but then, uh, then not too long thereafter, uh, I began to learn my Austrian economics and understand that uh, God, this is in a sense the best of both worlds. Not only is capitalism necessary to freedom, it's also necessary to lifting the lifting standards of the masses as well, uh, and that uh, that sort of clinched it. Totally for me, uh, and uh, I. So in a way, I'm talking to my former self. I am a bleeding heart. I do want the bleeding hearts to understand uh, overwhelmingly that uh, that that socialism is okay for the elites. Uh, where the where the where, where the where capitalism really matters economically is in the way in which it delivers uh, living standards material conditions of life to the masses.
0: That debate is called Socialism versus Capitalism, a debate with Jacobin Magazine. And I will link to that entire debate, the entire hour, 45 minutes. I think it even includes Dave Smith's little comedy introduction. I'll link to all that Mm -hmm. in today's show notes. And I I really do encourage people to watch the whole thing. But what I want to do today now, Gene, is I want to kind of shift over. And what I did was I went into my Lions of Liberty forum. It's our Facebook group, our public Facebook group, where fans of the show can come in and and give their thoughts on things. And I, I wanted people to to give their best arguments and I just mean best meaning I guess really the ones they hear the most, the ones that they find the most difficult to come up with objections to the, the ones they have most difficulty arguing with people on when it comes to socialism versus capitalism so what I'm going to do now is I'm going to try to kind of play devil's advocate a little bit and I've kind of collated a lot of those responses uh, on socialism into just a few of the, the key points uh, that people bring up that socialists and democratic socialists, whatever you want to call them uh, will bring up an objection to capitalism and and kind of get your responses to them to help better equip our audience with you know how to how to enter that debate sometimes. How's that sound? Sounds great. Go ahead. All right. So we're going to start off with one. It's it's a very basic one. Uh, this is just really the idea of the social safety net. So what would serve as a safety net for people who fall on hard times in a purely free market capitalism system that doesn't have state-run welfare programs, state-run unemployment programs? What would people do in a free market when they fall on hard times?
1: Well. Um, I guess uh, there's several answers to that. I I mean, the first point to highlight is that uh, even though uh, we do have a massive social safety net in this country, uh, people really are falling on hard times anyway because um, uh, poor people are given disincentives to work. Uh, it's not as though uh, the massive, the trillions of dollars that's spent on anti poverty programs in this country, the massive safety net we do have ultimately helps. But uh, really, the two things to say about uh, the extreme example that you're talking about, which I, I'm happy to discuss uh, a free market society in which there are no government run uh, transfer programs to the poor. Um, the first thing to say is that. Um, it's, it's clear enough that if we had an unfettered free market, uh, if we could truly uh, liberate all of those resources that government, first of all, employs, all of those lawyers who innovatively uh, try to get us not to pay our taxes, uh, all of those reasonably intelligent civil servants who work in government, all the ways in which government impedes uh, the, the, the mobility of capital, tariff barrier, all of the rest. Uh, we could have 7% growth every year which would mean that output would double every 10 years and so we already have by the way uh, people people who supposedly who live in poverty in this country uh, are are already far better off than most middle class people in most european countries but uh we, what we would call poverty uh would be maybe you know maybe the the, the comfort what we call poverty today is where the middle class lived in the fat 1950s even under fettered capitalism we've had progress but what we what we would call poverty uh would be uh the the uh, with comparable to what's middle class today uh there are there prob- probably so many you know we match so many things are free because they're in such abundance you know that people give out matches and and toothpicks, and uh, we'd have matches and toothpicks that would be food. I mean, there would be such. Uh, first of all, there'd be enormous abundance, but uh, under capitalism, under free market capitalism, which of course is the sort of thing that Karl Marx talked about, or even socialists tend to acknowledge that capitalism does deliver uh, to the to the masses. But beyond that, beyond that, uh, if you if you if you look at the philanthropy, certainly in this society, in this US economy, uh, even with government, even with government uh, crowding out so many philanthropic efforts, private sector philanthropy runs a constant 2% 2% of gross domestic product no matter where gross domestic product works private sector philanthropy as calculated by the IRS charitable contributions run 2% that's 200 billion a year and that's even though we all tell ourselves well the government is providing the government is helping unfortunates in in the late 1800s the, the massive philanthropy to help the poor in new york city was even celebrated by lincoln steffens uh, and uh, the uh, and uh, lincoln steffens being most famous as the muck record talked about how difficult it was uh, to live poor and of course that uh, the new york city of the of the late 1800s when the economy was course far poorer than it is today uh and so uh, it's I think it's clear that the combination of, of the kind of material growth that that free market can deliver plus, plus the compassion, the normal compassion of people who, who want to help others who, who are in trouble through no fault of their own. Uh, that would mean that uh, we'd wipe out whatever vestiges of, of what we call poverty today uh, altogether. Uh, but I mean beyond that though, uh, I will I, I would stipulate, I would stipulate. To what uh, to someone who's who really doesn't trust that that well let's start with a negative income tax and phase it out as people get richer. Uh, I'm I mean I, I I will give up a little bit of the argument in order to win the main argument about capitalism. I mean if you want some kind of enforced transfer payment to people of limited uh, to very poor people, uh, that's possible. But what, what do you mean by a negative income tax? Well, negative you know, well, negative income tax proposed by Milton Friedman would simply mean that if you earn below a certain Income, then, then, then you get uh, you get a subsidy through the IRS. That's the negative part, negative idea of the income tax. Then, instead of paying income tax to the IRS, to the Internal Revenue Service, you get paid something, and then, uh, and then it's phased out on a calibrated basis as you earn more. Um, And uh, he wanted that to substitute. For all welfare programs. It isn't really. It isn't really the, uh, the 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 what's talked about today, the universal basic income, but uh, it is uh, it is a kind of income floor. Uh, now, I don't really now. If you want to talk about the transition, certainly the, the main. You know, the, the, this is this will be a shocking statement. I was about to say. One of the principal reasons why people are poor today is because they don't have jobs. Uh, The the poor uh, 50 years ago, uh, the the people who were poor uh, did by and large have some kind of job, but what's happened to our welfare state? Uh, and what ha- will happen inevitably to any welfare state under this our kind of heterogeneous society is that welfare will cause a disincentive to work. And your parents and, and if you you're, if you if your mother was a drug addict when she was 16 and had you, or if your parents never worked, or you don't even know who your father is, the likelihood that you will work is much diminished. And uh, that, un- that, unfortunately, is the case uh, with respect to welfare, certainly in countries like the US or in, con- in countries like Britain. Uh, so if we're talking about the transitional period, then certainly it would be very hard to pull the plug altogether on welfare, even though there have been useful reforms that were implemented in the late 90s under Bill Clinton, ending welfare as we know it. But we'd have to take it in steps. Uh, but, but again, to reiterate, if, if somebody's put pushing me in the corner about the totally free economy, if we can achieve that state, uh, then clearly uh, work would be abundant, wages would be flexible, uh, output would grow at 7% a year, that in itself would cure poverty. And the natural compassion of people that, by the way, was celebrated by Adam Smith in his book, The Theory of Mor- Moral Sentiments, would more than take care of the rest, uh, and so the poor, the, it, what it would mean, we, we basically define poor poverty in this country as, of course, living uh, way below the median income. But of course, what we define as poverty in this country is unimaginable riches for most people in the third world. But so I use that word poor in quotes. But if, <laughs> if it's perceived that people are in trouble through no fault of their own, then I think yeah, it's clear to me that their natural compassion of people would mean that there would be charitable contributions that would help them out.
0: All right, Gene, the next objection I want to bring up is one that you hear all the time. This is the concept of pollution. Uh, people will say that capitalism is naturally bad for the environment because companies can externalize the cost of pollution for the sake of profit, while everyone else in society has to basically bear the burden of that pollution. So what is the, what is the response to that argument that we would need some sort of centrally planning to prevent companies from polluting and from harming the rest of us.
1: To begin with, I, I actually I did have a question of that sort from the floor uh, when I had the debate with Baskar, uh and uh, pollution uh, is not uh, does not come from capitalism. Pollution comes from industrialism. It it comes from uh, the in particular, for example, the use of uh, coal and the use of oil, uh, fossil fuels, in, in order to power our economy. Uh, And uh, uh, pollution uh, often comes from the fact that we have uh, less capitalism rather than more. By that I mean, uh, if somebody throws garbage into your backyard, he's polluting your backyard. But you have property rights in your backyard, and if he does that, you can sue him in the courts for harm. Uh, But uh, if somebody... Pollutes. uh, If a company pollutes a lake or a river, it's not privately owned. If it were privately owned, then there would be a a restraining order against that person through the courts, uh, or against that company through the courts, that would prevent that company from polluting the lake. Or the river you own, and so, for example, famously by now, uh, the pollution of Lake Baikal by by the Soviet industries was was awful. Lake Baikal was just killed by Soviet in, uh, industries under Soviet socialism uh, because it was just a public good; nobody owned it, and uh, and clearly the, com- the, the 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 factories had to operate, and so they polluted. And so, uh, there's no there's no solution. Uh, to pollution by ending capitalism. Uh, the only way to, to, to solve it all together is to end industrialism, and that is sort of like what the, the green movement is telling poor, the poor people of the world in China and India, fossil fuels for me, but not for thee. In other words, fossil fuels, according to them, are causing global warming. Therefore, we have to put a stop to them, and by putting a stop to them, we have to prevent uh, the use of fossil fuels by uh, by uh, by by people in the third world, but people in the third world are, are instead of using fossil fuels, they're burning dung uh, to uh, to heat their homes or to cook, and that dung is killing them through indoor air pollution. And so we have numerous problems uh, with respect to poverty and industrialization. None of them specifically related to capitalism. Uh, the main solution. Uh, for for any of it, whether it's a socialist, whether it would be a socialist economy or in, or a capitalist economy, would be uh, first of all the courts. Uh, air pollution is not polluting the air; it pollutes our it pollutes our our, our throats, and uh, we can bring a class action suit against somebody who harms us. Just as as I said, somebody who throws garbage on his neighbor's lawn can be sued by his neighbor for so doing. And uh, similarly, we can have more property rights rather than less. Uh, we can actually, just to be mind-blowing, we could privatize the oceans. The oceans are being polluted, but if they were privately owned, then we could put a stop to that. However, the, the, those, those who own those part, their parts of the ocean could protect themselves legally and, and prevent the pollution from being imposed on them. Uh, and so the, 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 the short answer is that, is that to bring up capitalism as, as the root cause of pollution uh, is, 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 is an irrelevancy. The, the root cause is industrialism, and we all opt for industrialism. We all support it, especially the poor people of the world. And uh, um, amazingly, uh, you know, the, the greatest, the people who believe the, the biggest carbon footprints are, the, are those who are Al Gore and others and Leonardo DiCaprio, who said he wants to fly around the world and lecture us on, on, on the problems of global warming. Well, if he's going to do that, he's going to leave, leave an immense carbon footprint because he's going to burn a lot of jet fuel in the process. Uh, And so uh, there are solutions, there are controls through the courts, through taxes, uh, and none of it specifically has to do with capitalism. It's all about industrialism.
0: How do you address the global warming issue specifically? Because I do find that one a lot more difficult uh, in in casual conversation with people about this stuff, even when when bringing up the arguments about pollution, how that could be better handled in a private property. But what people will say is they'll say, you know, global warming isn't an identical, or or maybe climate change, whatever you want to say. But uh, I know that the phraseology always keeps changing, but they'll say this isn't something you can necessarily point to one company and sue the one company because there's not damage you can see in front of you right now, they'll say the damage is going to come generations from now, and that's why we have to sort of address all these problems right now. And I don't want to get too far down the the rabbit hole of global warming, but just sure. I was curious how you address that from sort of a free market perspective when people say that the the pollution isn't really manifesting itself today as much as it might be generations from now.
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I I will just let me assert uh, that because uh, I have taken a fa- I've taken a keen interest in the subject, and and I am convinced that if global warming is a problem uh, as it may be it's a uh, it's a 100 year problem really in search of a 50 year solution and that uh, it's absolutely nuts disastrous and ridiculous to make the statement as i just said that, uh, that that the rich people of the world are telling the poor people fossil fuels for me but not for thee they are dying of of, of, of in their own way of, of burning dung in order to heat themselves. But that's, a, that's just a factual dispute. Uh, let's even pick up on the way you've put it and, and say that, uh, that, that if we could demonstrate, the, the, in a pure case, we could demonstrate through the courts that, that, the, that the buildup of carbon dioxide now has to be stopped because it's going to kill our grandchildren. I regard that as a legitimate case. And and that would be a class action suit that would be brought against uh, a, a whole group of companies. We all—they'd all be listed. I mean, to, simply to say that no particular company is—is—is is, is the major contributor, but there are just uh, several thousand, or even ten thousand, or more companies that are. Does not mean that you can't put a restraining order on those ten thousand. I mean, if this is uh, such a big problem that all of those things are administratively doable, uh, the point is that you're—you're you're only so much shifting gears and saying, well, it's not one company. It's not one person throwing garbage on your lawn. It's it's a lot of people throwing a little bit of garbage on your lawn, and that's going to build up in a number of years. But if you can prove all that, you uh, can prove all that before a panel of experts or, or the courts, then that would be what you'd want to do. Now, I think, of course, it would never hold up. I think it is ridiculous. The fact of the matter is that uh, that there is no, I believe, no imminent problem uh, and that we will be, and that we basically cannot take the position that we're going to cut, cut fossil fuels down to the bone or, or force uh, the poor countries of the world like China and, and India from doing so. China's building coal-fired plants. So all of it's ridiculous. However, I can, I can concede in principle that if you can make the case that we're we're in the process of sealing the fate of our grandchildren. Look, I have a friend who believes that. He flies, he's retired, he flies all over the world, he has himself a good time. I said, you believe that this is gonna happen, you're killing your grandchild, and yet you keep doing it? Obviously, he doesn't really believe it. But if that's what we, if that was shown, to be the case, that it would be a rather unusual case of pollution. And I think it would hold up and we could put a restraining order on 10,000 companies that are doing it. Administratively expensive, but it's a very, very odd situation and it's all quite doable. Uh, it's, but it's all about torts. It's all about harm. Uh, and, and if we could make the case that we're harming uh, our, grand, our, our, our grandchildren, role, that not right now, but that we're sealing our fate by, 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 by doing what we're doing today, then, then, then that could hold up and we would make the judgment and we would impose the restraining order on the companies. All quite doable.
0: Right, another big criticism you hear is a little more uh, philosophical, I guess you might say. And what you'll hear a lot is that capitalism is inherently exploitative, that it requires people to sell their labor for the lowest amount possible just in order to survive so all these giant companies can profit. What is your response to this concept? And, and, and Brashkar did bring it up several times that there is this exploitive quality to capitalism and that that would not exist, I guess, under his concept of democratic socialism. Again, we're not necessarily talking about... That debate, but in general, what is your response to the idea that capitalism is inherently exploitative?
1: Really, I have two responses that I think, and each one I think is important. Uh, the, the the first response is the one that I offered Baskar, because uh, we weren't specifically talking about the economics of exploitation, but the one I offered Baskar deals with it. I pointed out to Baskar. That uh, that that if he does if he thinks it's essentially an exploitative and awful situation for people to work for capitalists, then he can have worker-owned enterprises. I put it in broad outlines. I pointed out that one third of all consumer spending in the U.S. is accounted for by the bottom half of the population. Uh, uh, nearly two thirds is accounted for by the bottom four-fifths, so he could marshal enormous consumer power if, if all of those people are suffering and he'd say, look, buy from cap- from socialist companies. Let's start creating our, our own worker-owned companies and bootstrap them through crowdfunding. Um, he could go that route. Then on top of that, more than $3 trillion is, is uh, of assets controlled by union pension funds, that money can invest in such enterprises. The, if he marshals consumer power, he could boycott firms and drive them into bankruptcy and buy them on the cheap. If, if, if it's so obvious to so many people that this is an awful exploitative situation, then all Baskar has to do is create socialism through capitalist means, create worker-owned companies, Work for your, don't work for capitalists. Work for yourself. That's all quite doable with private ownership of the means of production. So while Basco is wrong to think that that workers are exploited, it doesn't matter. Even if he's right or whether he's wrong or not, uh, he can overcome it by uh, by simply resorting to capitalist means to bring about worker-owned companies, interconnected worker-owned companies, a sub-economy of socialists. And if it's all so wonderful, then we'll all join. There'll, there'll be an enormous demonstration effect about all these happy people who own and operate their own companies. It's an experiment that's been tried many times. There's been the Kibbutzim in in Israel, the Kibbutzim are are on life support from the government, but. That was indeed worker-owned capitalist enterprise. And so that's an obvious solution. Uh, and in a way, that sort of solves the matter. That's where Baskar kept backing off because it clearly got him a little bothered I was calling his bluff. Uh, but the second point, of course, is that, is that there is no... It, it, actually, there are really two more points. The, the second point is that statistically uh, and in terms of economic, dynamics uh, workers uh, workers get their share when in, in, a, in an expanding productive economy, real wages rise and real wages rise because while while there is worker need and employer greed, Uh, The workers need to get a job, and employers are greedy, they don't want to pay them any more than they have to, uh, In certainly in large metropolitan areas where most people live. I'll take that as an easy case. I could even deal with the case of the company town where there's only one employer, but But in large economies, large industrial, large urban areas where most people live, the vast majority of us have scores of potential employers. We can shop around. And so, if the the employers are going to give us jobs, they have to give us wages and working conditions that are to our liking. If we don't like one job, we shift to another. There are nearly 40 million people a year in this in this economy right now are quitting their jobs to take other jobs voluntarily quitting their jobs to take other jobs that's the, that is the market power that workers have employers employers are greedy but employers have got to pay to, to pay product, productive workers decent wages otherwise they're not going to earn any profits and workers are needy but workers they need to get a job but they can shop around uh, for pay and working conditions that they prefer and then we know empirically how well this has worked we know that in the 19th century uh, when there were no when unions were minuscule neglig- 19th century in the us when unions were a negligible part of the economy uh, when government intervention into the labor markets was negligible and when on top of that tens of millions of immigrants were streaming into the country and when workers should have had should have really been at a disadvantage we know that the material conditions of the average working person rose dramatically from 1870 to about 1925, uh, during that period in which government, again, government involvement in the labor markets was was, was minuscule and in which union membership, union representation was minuscule. How did that happen? The reason it happened is because of the dynamics that I'm talking about. Uh, Workers, worker wages, do rise in real terms, and as a matter of fact, it mostly happens on the supply side. Most of the major, the va- virtually all of the major fortunes are made by serving the masses. That was true of the robber barons, that's true of Bill Gates, it's true of Be- Jeff Bezos, it was true of Sam Walton. That's where the money is mainly serving the masses, and those goods and services go to the masses. Walmart. Was has has the anti-poverty implicit anti-poverty program of Walmart is probably the most important way in which uh, ordinary people have lifted their living standards. Uh, But then, so empirically, uh, capitalism uh, operates uh, to the advantage of all, and certainly to the to the advantage of anybody who wants a job. We we know that in terms of economic dynamics that I briefly explained, and we know that in terms of sheer statistics, we know uh, as well that China, when it instituted uh, market liberalization reforms in 1978, and when their dictator leader, Deng Deng Xiaoping started to put out the statement to be rich is glorious, we know that the living standards of the average Chinese that's when they started to climb. When China went instituted market reforms, uh, that's when it made all the difference. We know that the Economic Freedom Index, as put out by the Fraser Institute, correlates with economic well-being of ordinary people. Uh, we know all that. But then the third part of it, which gets, I guess, a little bit arcane, is that the capitalist is not ex, is 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 not exploiting the worker, uh, the capitalist is putting up money up front and paying the worker. The capitalist is waiting for the residual profit or the residual return, whereas the worker has to be paid up front. Uh, and so it's not inherently an exploitative situation. And and it really almost gets back to the same to the, fir- the point I made earlier. If it's so damn great to be a capitalist, try it yourself own and operate your own company. Workers can do that. Uh, and uh, that, it, that opportunity is open to them uh, in the ways that I described. Uh, so again, those are the, the key reasons why this idea of exploitation just makes no sense.
0: All right. Well, uh, moving on to another topic, um, and this one is, is, I guess it's similar in a way that it's just sort of a, a very to me, anyway, when I hear the argument, it's sort of very vague and, and very esoteric. But it, it is one that seems to come up a lot. People will say that capitalism inherently leads to inequality, and they'll say that socialism is is great because it will close that gap between the rich and the poor, whereas capitalism only widens the gap between the rich and the poor. So, what is your response to that? That argument.
1: The first, a- the first answer, the first response to give uh, to that kind of problem is to ask people specifically, uh, would would you rather? Uh, would you prefer to double your income uh, while somebody else is tripling his or her income? Your income is doubled, but somebody else's income is tripled. Ergo, inequality is widened. Or would you prefer to have your income take less, uh, but somebody else's income uh, is uh, is also cut in half, and I- ergo. Uh, Inequality narrows. Uh, which would you prefer? Uh, now, uh, I, I remember lecturing in uh, actually in in in, in uh, Bucharest before a bunch of college students. I gave them a similar problem. I found, of course, the vast majority uh, would take the first example that a widening inequality is okay uh, uh, when under a circumstance in which you're doing better, even though somebody somebody's uh, doing even better than you, and so widening inequality widens, or everybody does worse, or nobody does better, but inequality narrows. Now, clearly, uh, in its worst case, uh, capitalism brings the former. Uh, socialism brings the latter. In its best case, socialism brings the latter. It's uh, it's uh, there's no incentives. Pl- uh, there, there's bureaucracy. It it brings no growth or slow growth or con- or economic contraction. That's what socialism brings. Capitalism <laughs> might bring more inequality, but uh, but it but it but it lifts everybody's living standards at the same time. I myself don't lose any sleep over how rich. Jeff Bezos is, how much richer Jeff Bezos is or, or, than I am, uh, it doesn't matter at all to me. Uh, it might matter to envious people, but it doesn't matter to me. But again, I, I go back to the, my same challenge, which I think is a very important one to level uh, against the socialists. If you don't like that, if you don't like uh, the idea that, uh, that Steve Jobs made a lot of money, and Jeff Bezos made a lot of money, uh, and, and Sam Walton made a lot of money, then, then abolish those things through capitalism. Uh, create your own worker-owned firms and pay everybody the same, if that's what you want to do, uh, and uh, that, that's all quite doable. If that's what you insist on, uh, I don't think it will be. It will sustain itself, as Robert Nozick pointed out. If you begin with it from a socialist uh, a society in which everybody is paid according to the desired pattern, what do you do when Wilt Still Chamberlain decides to demonstrate his basketball skills for money? How do you object to that? Because in the first instance, everybody got paid what they were supposed to get paid. So if they want to give Wilter Still Chamberlain some of their money, what are you going to do? What are you going to do if a brain surgeon wants to charge more? What are you going to do if somebody wants if somebody wants to start his own business and sink or swim on his own? Uh, that could bring inequality. Uh, but with that said, I'll tell you something else that, that is rather interesting. Uh, because because uh, capitalism... Uh, The moves toward capitalism, toward markets, have taken over the third world, especially in China, to some degree in India. Uh, In fact, uh, world inequality has narrowed over the last 20 years. Uh, But although inequality within countries has has, has widened, within China it's widened, if you actually look on a global basis, it's narrowed. Uh, However, again. Uh, if you care about inequality, you can do something about it. Join your own worker-owned firm and everybody gets paid the same or nearly the same. Uh, if, uh, if you're an envious person, do something about it. In terms of values, though, in terms of ethics, if you're not an envious person, what you really want to see is just everybody does better than they used to if they want to, if they want to better themselves. And it doesn't matter to you uh, that some people do extremely well doesn't matter at all. I guess. Come to think of it, the final point to make is there's a lot of inequality that's due to crony capitalism, uh, what I prefer to call capitalism after my socialist uncle Abe, and that, that's forcible redistribution of income to certain rich people, which I could go into. That, but that's not because of the result of inequality, it's because of the means. The means was not capitalist acts between consenting adults, it was forcible intervention by government uh, to help out rich people, Uh, and that's something I do object to. That's the only kind of inequality I do object to, but only because of the means, not because of the result.
0: Right, and that that does tie in a little bit to the next objection I wanted to bring up, and and this one is a little difficult, I think, because there is less than zero, or there's more than zero truth to it, and it, it's the idea that a lot of the capital that um that people are using right now, or that, that the capitalists are using, it goes going back generations, is not all justly acquired. Uh, whether it's the killing of Native Americans and stealing their land, or um, you know, people using slave labor to build their capital, and have, maybe they even inherited a a lot of that capital and are now using it, there's a lot of people that will bring up that concept that, sure, maybe the way you're talking about it would be fine if everybody acquired their capital justly, but the reality is they will say that most of the the major capitalists today did not acquire their capital justly. They acquired it through generations of kind of systemic injustices. So so what is your response to that?
1: To begin with, I have to challenge And I know you're playing devil's advocate, Mark, (laughs) but uh, but that word "most"—anybody who says that—most of the of those capitalists.
0: Yeah. To be clear, I'm not saying I know know the devil is. (laughs) Yes, indeed.
1: Mark is not saying that, guys. So I want you to know that <laughs> my friend Mark Claire doesn't quite believe what he just said. He's playing devil's advocate. But
0: I do believe some people. I mean, there are probably certain instances oh. you could look at and say, "Well, this family clearly, this all goes back to this one injustice." You know, where X, Y, and Z happened.
1: Right. Yeah. Okay. I, but but I I do want to deal. I you're right, Mark. Look, I want, I try to I wanted I'm trying as best I can to deal just as you want me to with with right. with. A, with with it, with a, with a pure case, just as I try to deal with global warming, I said empirically, I don't. I think it's an exaggerated problem. I said, okay, but let's say it is. What would we do? Similarly, uh, I'll deal with this pure case that that somebody became rich through slavery uh, of 150 years ago, and what do we do about that? But but I, but, I, but I first want to point out something that is important and and maybe has ramifications that that even you have haven't anticipated. The point is only that uh, that that certainly to begin with we know that empirically uh, there are very few very few companies on the fortune 500 list in the 1950s, that are on the Fortune 500 list today, we know that empirically, the dominant firms were—I mean, the Fang, you know, Facebook, Apple, uh, Netflix, uh, and uh, and uh, and so Fang, of Facebook, and of course uh, Google—they are all created by people of limited means. These fabulously rich people today, they weren't rich once. So we do know that that under unfettered capitalism, Sam Walton was born uh, uh, poor and relatively limited means. We do know that empirically, uh, this is a very negligible problem and one of the big reasons it is a negligible problem is that uh, is that it's difficult I, I mean i'll make another point that that the uh that that uh, the IRS composite uh, list of the 400 richest taxpayers because they have that empirically and it turns out that it's very difficult to remain on the list for more than one year there's enormous turnover uh, uh, and that uh, the ri- most of the richest people did not were not born rich, and part of the reason, the, the key reason for that, is that is that if you allow capitalism to function, the the only way uh, for fortunes to be held onto, the only way for, for you to build something, is for not just for you the original slaveholder to to have been rich, but that your children, their children, your great-grandchildren, your great-grandchildren, they all have to be competent along the way because you you do have to keep working, keep at it in order to stay rich. So my only point is that empirically, uh, this is a very minor problem, Uh, or, or in particular, let's say that that you uh, that, that that somebody acquired land unjustly the land was seized what happens what happens to the children to the grandchildren to the great grandchildren well what probably happens is that they sold the land because there were a bunch of heirs and whoever took over the land is now operating the land Productively, and now knows how to so so capital and land and all the rest of it acquired unjustly generally gets gets handed over to people who actually know how to do it, how to handle it productively, who themselves really cannot pay much in the way of reparations. But so therefore empirically, it's not much of an issue. But but if you want to now focus on the idea that 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 somebody somebody is to some degree profiting from land that he took from your ancestors, or somebody is to some degree profiting from, uh, from the labor of your great grandparent, then I could see a case for reparations to be due you. Uh, all of that, uh, that, that could happen. But, uh, but again, my key point is that if you allow unfettered capitalism to operate, uh, then it's very difficult to imagine that that the, uh, the that the money that people are making are not are not due to their own ingenuity and not due to their own creativity, uh, because it's very difficult to survive simply because you inherited a few bucks from your ancestor. So therefore. It's a it's a minor problem, but to the extent that you really can trace it, then I would do something about it. I mean, with that said, I, I would I want to make the point that uh, that the, all of the assertions that have been made about the importance of slavery uh, to the U.S. economy uh, in the early half of the, uh, of the 1800s are just ridiculous. The, fa- the, the pathetic fact, unfortunately, is that the, the, uh, the contribution that the slaves made is as nothing compared to the contribution that just a bunch of innovators made to the economy. Nothing nothing compared. All of the, all of the slave labor that operated, tragically, Operated uh, and unjustly operated for so many decades uh, in the U.S. economy is as nothing compared to the cumulative contributions of a Thomas Edison uh, to his innovations that lifted the material conditions of our economy. And so, usually, it's it's pretty pathetic. But again, I want to insist that uh, that if somebody, if you can show that something was uh, was acquired unjustly, and that Reparations can be made to those people uh, whose ancestors were treated unjustly. Then I can see that reparations should be paid. Uh, with that said, finally, uh, I, I recommend that everybody read uh, Thomas Sowell's book *Cosmic Justice*. That, by and large, by and large, most of the uh, most of the injustices of history cannot be righted, and uh, and that and he counsels against. Uh, and I think wisely counsels against trying to mete out cosmic justice. Uh, we have difficulty enough uh, meeting out justice in the, in the current world, much less meeting out cosmic justice. But, uh, but I could still see a case for some cosmic justice being meted out under certain circumstances.
0: Sure. In- inevitably, if you're going to go try to right generational wrongs yeah. by, you know, going after the ancestors of anyone who may have had uh, someone who had, ex- who had maybe stolen land or done something unjust generations ago or hundreds of years ago, all you're really going to end up doing is create a bunch of new victims in a society. Like you said, where we're already having problems, even having justice in our present world, yeah. trying to go back generations. It's really going to cause even more. Well, issues. That,
1: that's right. That's right. Exactly. I mean, the, 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 the the, the slavery reparations. I mean, who is going to pay? And uh, and and the, who's going to pay black people for slavery? Uh, are you going to pay West Indian blacks who whose ancestors were not slaves? Are you going to exact this from people, immigrants who just arrived 20 years ago, who didn't profit from slavery? I mean, what a nightmare. And uh, nobody takes the idea of, of, of that seriously. Let me tell you a funny story, uh, uh, which is true, uh, that in the year 2000, and this is about my own Jewish people, uh, in the year 2000, you know, there was money set aside by Germany and Switzerland from, to, to offer reparations to Holocaust survivors. And there, is, and, there, and there was actually, of course, you and I could probably readily see a compelling case for reparations paid to legitimate Holocaust survivors. In the year 2000, however, there were a million people applying for these reparations. And as the mother of a guy I know said, who actually was a Holocaust survivor, what she said was that if there were a million people in the year 2000 who were Holocaust survivors, who did Hitler ever kill? So I, I, I'm only making that point because again, the corruption, the lunacy that ensued from was something that you and I would even say was a, was a just idea uh reparations to holocaust survivors it got out of control a million people looking for this compensation in the year 2000 and
0: much more recent that's even recent history for some people that are living imagine how crazy it gets when we're going i
1: I want to add for young people the holocaust ended in 1945 No, 45 years earlier that's why she said if a million holocaust survivors are alive in the year 2000 who could hitler have ever killed Right. Uh, just want to clarify that
0: point, <laughs> anyway. Well, Gene, what, one more objection. I know we've been going on pretty sure. long here, but there's I'm one right fun, here. I'm having fun, Mark. Of course, yes. I don't know if people
1: are still listening, but I'm enjoying. Oh, there.
0: Oh, our fan, my fans are still listening. Yeah, okay. That's for sure. The, the socialists that tuned in might have tuned out. But okay. No, I, I will. I will. I will that's admit sure. that. Uh, one more thing I wanted to address. Uh, again, it's one of those sort of esoteric concepts that you know really just comes from a different philosophical point than I think either you and I would come from. But mm-hmm. it's it's what I hear a lot that that capitalism isn't inherently wasteful, that, mm-hmm. you know, th- resources are allocated based on profit, based on corporate profits, not based on the needs of individuals. Uh, a lot of people will say that they see that capitalists are the, the people that own the capital, that... that acquire so much money they just have way more than they need and they waste it on frivolous things yeah. and that's why it is justified to take a portion of that money at least and uh you know use it to improve education for poor people or in- improve healthcare for poor people because those people need it whereas people sitting on hundreds of millions of dollars or billions of dollars they simply don't need that money
1: yeah um, okay, sure.
0: And it's really hard for me no, to make this argument well, well, when well, I no, don't no, believe no, no. it at all. But I, I got to do my best here. You
1: did a good job, Mark. You did a good job. I and mean, the matter of fact, there, there's a lot to say. Uh, I mean, first, the, the let's deal with the empirical facts. Um, the the waste that we speak of. Uh, well, um, bear in mind that the distribution of income. Uh, is a lot more unequal than the distribution of consumption of consumer spending. Uh, the top, uh, the top twenty percent account for a little over a third of all consumer spending. Uh, in other words, that's why the bottom eighty percent account for nearly two thirds. And so, so that so let's say they're picking out that top twenty percent, or because we could parse it down further, but by and large. Uh, People who have a lot of money uh, don't spend it on wasteful consumption. Yeah, of course, they do live in those mansions and so on. But let's at least understand the, the most the, the surprisingly limited magnitude of this so-called problem. What do those people do with all that money? Well, they do three things. Actually, of course, they pay a lot in taxes, to the government already. But of course, we're saying, well, they should pay more in taxes, uh, apparently. Uh, the second thing they do is that they donate it. Uh, that's why I said, you know, $200 billion a year, a standard 2% of the gross domestic product, the nominal gross domestic product of $20 trillion, uh, goes for philanthropy. They donate it. And then, of course, most importantly, what they do is invest it. And they invest it. Uh, and they uh, in in enterprise that by and large serves the needs serves the demand of that bottom eighty percent that accounts for two nearly two thirds of all consumption that serves the need of that bottom one fifth about uh, b- bottom half rather that that accounts for one third of all consumption and so in broad brushstrokes then it's not exactly the most outrageous situation in the world, uh, obviously we know philanthropists who are bent on on uh, giving away most of their money. I have mixed feelings about about Bill Gates and, and uh, Warren Buffett, but that's what they're doing. So it's difficult for me to feel that outrage about it. Uh, now I guess I have to play a, a purely libertarian card and say that, uh, that much as I might actually be somewhat critical about the way the Gates Buffett Foundation donates its money, I think that they make mistakes that they could rectify. Uh, I think perhaps better off if they invested it. I would still prefer that they do it. I would still prefer that rich people uh, even consume some of it, some more than they used to, uh, or or invest a lot of it, than that money go into the government's cheese factory. Uh, I, I, do, I do think that our educational system is predatory. That's a long story. But I recommend that people read articles I've written about this based upon Brian Kaplan's book, The Case Against Education. I think that, uh, that it makes it more difficult for poor people to get, jobs by for, get decent jobs by forcing them to go through hoops. Uh, I think that government spends its money on war. Uh, and that's bad. And so I would rather see uh, these rich people even waste it than than for the gov for, for the money to go to the government. But with that said, by and large, they they spend a lot on themselves, but it's exaggerated. Uh, by and large, consumer spending is ruled by the bottom four fifths, not by the top one fifth. Uh, but uh, but uh, and and on top of that, what they do is invest it, and that provides capital. Uh, for all of us, uh, serving the needs of those consumers, and then they give it away. Uh, But with all of that said, uh, to some great degree, there are fabulously rich lawyers, there are fabulously rich bankers, fabulously rich investment bankers, who's, and indeed, actually, fabulously rich athletes, uh, because of the, the, the massive subsidies to sports stadiums, who are making a lot of their money because of the intervention of government, because of crony capitalism or capitalism uh, uh, that forcibly uh, distributes income to them. That's the only part that I do object to. Uh, but uh, by but but by and large, uh, by and large, uh, it, the problem with that, uh, uh, that question arises from a very naive view of how government will spend our money. It will often spend it on protecting elites, not undermining them. It will often spend, spend it on predatory wars. Uh, It will often spend it on what I regard as our predatory school system. And by and large, uh, I trust rich people who are philanthropists and donors to spend it a bit more wisely. So none of that should bother, really bother any of us at the end of the day, with the exception, the sole exception of crony capitalism.
0: Sure. And I think one of the biggest problems in this conversation is is so much of the problems that people will point out, that socialists will point out, they will speak as if we currently live in what we're... Advocating for, <laughs> you know, they they will speak as if we currently live in the free market capitalist system and point out all these problems, yes. and then say that's why we need socialism. Mm-hmm. Whereas libertarians, such as you and I, would say we're not in what we're talking about. Uh, most of the problems that you're pointing, we have a degree of it, of course, and we'd like to have more of it, not less of it. But most of the problems that they point out are really more the crony capitalism than the actual capitalism. And I think making that distinction is, you know, one of the biggest challenges we have when when debating this topic.
1: Oh, absolutely, uh, absolutely. The, the, but by uh, I, I want to say a couple of things about that. Number one, I do believe that that everybody's living, virtually everybody's living standards are higher than they were twenty-five years ago. As an easy benchmark, you know, higher, higher than in the early nineteen nineties, say. Uh, certainly higher than in the nineteen eighties. It's an easy benchmark. Uh, I, I do believe. On top of that, that everybody virtually everybody's income is higher than it was even ten years ago. So I do see economic progress. and because I see it, I do believe that that the crony capitalist system is not dominant. I do believe that the free market system uh, has an edge still. And so uh, that's the happy part of the story. Uh, but, but if, we, but if we remove the fetters, uh, if we do a number of things, if we abolish restrictive licensure on all levels of the economy, restrictive licensure, by the way, just to shock people, for doctors, and lawyers restrictive licensure. A poor person shouldn't have to go through high school, college, and law school in order to practice divorce law. Anybody with aptitude can work for a firm that provides this service and uh, and, and provide it after a year or so of training on the job. Uh, the restrictive licensure that makes it difficult for people to become beauticians or manicurists. Uh, and then, most importantly, uh, the awful way in which government uh, makes real estate, makes housing more expensive in, in, in areas like San Francisco or New York City, uh, where uh, it's clear totally clear that where government intervenes less in the housing market as it intervenes less in places like Austin and Dallas, uh, housing is far more affordable than, than it is in areas where, where the affordable housing movement uh, dominates as it does in areas like New York City and uh, San Francisco. Uh, and all of those things, you're absolutely right, are a little bit more difficult to convey to people. But, but still, uh, I don't believe the crony capitalist system dominates because I still see evidence that people's standards of living are indeed rising despite all of those problems opposed by the crony capitalist system. All
0: right, Gene. Well, I do appreciate you coming on here and once again uh, defending capitalism against socialism. I, I hope I at least did an okay job of sort of kind of pretending to believe any of these socialist arguments.
1: <laughs> you did an excellent job, Mark, And uh, but I'm, I'm still not running for office, uh, so don't even ask, but uh, I had a good time. Thanks, Mark.
0: Okay, well, we'll see if I can I can bring more people into this movement sure. in the meantime and okay. I'll see where it goes. Uh, Gene, thank you so much for coming on. Before I let you go, why don't you just let everybody know one more time where they can find all your work and uh you know maybe give a preview of anything uh cool you got coming up at the soho forum
1: Uh well gosh you know all my work is kind of scattered i send it out to different people i i do i'm do i'm happy about the fact that you're providing the link to the debate i had with bascar despite the fact that it's a little embarrassed at how heated i got although my young my my younger oh, that's my
0: favorite part Come my on. younger what's that's my favorite part
1: yeah <laughs> I'll tell you there was a split even a few older people liked the way it got heated my younger audience they really liked it and one I got surrounded by a crowd of young guys at a at a Mises Institute. Event I went to and they said, I almost felt sorry for that guy, the way you laid it on him. And I said, guys, that, that's just the problem. I probably want some sympathy for him. Uh, the older crowd thought I got a little bit too heated. But in any case, it, I'm still proud of the debate. Uh, and I and I appreciate your point of view. They said, oh, that was just passion. I was being passionate, and I guess I was. But I'm going to temper my, my my bad temper the next time uh, I debate something like that. In any case, I'm happy you're providing that link. Uh, but more specifically, uh, I'd like people to just to, to go into that link uh, to see that debate. Uh, socialism is more effective than capitalism in bringing freedom to the masses. All
0: right, well, Gene F.C., I look forward to all that, and we look forward to having you back on sometime down the road because we all know that you can uh, come on and talk about a lot of different topics. So we'll certainly be in touch with you and wish you the best of luck, and we'll have our eye on that Soho forum.
1: My pleasure. Thanks.
0: <laughs> all right, my Liberty kitty cats. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Gene Epstein, an epic conversation if I do say so myself, and I'm hoping this is one you'll want to listen to a couple times to really absorb everything Gene is saying in his defense of free markets against I don't want to say the evils. I know there are some people out there that uh, that identify with the ideas of socialism. But, well, okay, yes, I'm going to say the evils of socialism. Uh, thank you again for Gene for taking the time out to battle all these ideas and bat them all away with his lightsaber of liberty. And, again, I will link to that full debate over in today's show notes over at lionsofliberty.com slash 376. And I also want to remind you it's not just me here at the Lions of Liberty podcast. I am also joined by my comrades in liberty, Brian McWilliams every Wednesday brings you his weekly shot of comedy, culture, and liberty on Electric Liberty Land. While John Odie Odermat wraps things up every single Friday over on Felony Friday. And that's, and of course, before you get to all of the extra bonus content you're going to get when you go and sign up for the Lions of Liberty Pride by supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Lions of Liberty so that you can see me this coming Thursday take questions live from members of the Lions of Liberty Pride while I ingest various levels of hot sasses as they escalate and escalate and escalate as the questions get tougher i will be continuing to take the heat and sweat a little bit more so please do check out patreon.com slash lions of liberty to see me take the heat until next time folks live long and live free